Section 15 of U.S. Money versus Corporation Currency, Aldrich Plan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Edwards. U.S. Money versus Corporation Currency, Aldrich Plan by Alfred Owen Crozier. Chapter 13. Money is the Power. Secrets of High Finance Exposed Steel Trusts $75 million Cash The Real Money Trust Heart of the Trust Problem We, the United States Steel Corporation, keep about $75 million on deposit in the banks of the country, which we can shift about where it is needed by our business. The above is from the published report of the testimony of Judge Albert H. Gary, executive head of the Steel Trust before the Senate Committee on Interstate Commerce in Washington on December 7, 1911. Without intending hereby to make any specific charges against Judge Gary or that corporation, we hope to evolve a short, useful, hypothetical sermon with the above quotation for a text. Readers may draw their own moral conclusions. At times, say before dividend periods, no doubt this cash fund is much greater, perhaps double, $150 million or more. Remember, this is not bank credit or deposits merely offsetting loans. It is cold cash. As such, when deposited, it instantly becomes part of the cash reserves of the favored banks. Such banks under the law, on the average, are permitted to inflate their ordinary loans of credit an amount aggregating about ten times such increase in cash reserves. In reserve cities, banks must keep a cash reserve on hand equal to 25% of their deposits. In other places, 15%. But three-fifths of the 15% can be kept in reserve city banks and therefore is twice used as the basis of credit loans. This is the reason the volume of loans of all the banks happens to aggregate at least ten times the total money in their cash reserves. Ninety percent of all bank deposits are mere checks or discounted notes, not actual money. In other words, the Steel Trust, by depositing $75 million cash in banks, substantially enables such banks immediately to swell their loans of credit and to collect interest on about three-quarters of a billion dollars extra without investment by the banks of one additional dollar. Likewise, if the Steel Trust suddenly should withdraw the $75 million from the banks, it would force such banks immediately to contract their total loans three-fourths of a billion dollars, that is, require borrowers from banks to pay up loans aggregating $750 million, and the banks would lose the chance to get 6% per annum or other going rate on that vast sum. There will be some reduction of these figures, not more than, say, 25%, if the money should be deposited in banks, in reserve cities, where a cash reserve equal to 25% of total deposits is required. These figures, in relative proportion and size, are substantially correct, but any ultra-captious critic is welcome to reduce the figures 50%, and still we will have the same grave dangers modified slightly only in degree. Bank Inflation and Huge Profits According to the United States Comptroller's Report of December 4, 1911, 
The 24,392 reporting national and state banks and trust companies of the United States on June 7, 1911, all combined owned and possessed just 1,554,147,169.28 of money, in round figures a billion and a half in cash. With only this amount of cash in their reserves to use for all purposes, the banks and trust companies have piled up liabilities that total the enormous sum of $23,631,083,382.67, more than 23 and one-half billions of dollars, the larger portion of which represents loans of credit on which they get regular interest and which cost the banks relatively nothing. It is similar to getting pay for endorsing another man's note. In other words, they have 15 times more liabilities than cash. All that a bank really owns net is its capital, surplus, and undivided profits. The balance of its assets merely represent and offset its debts or liabilities made in buying such extra assets. So, to be fair, we should take the combined capital stock, $1,952,411,085.56, and the combined surplus and undivided profits, $2,065,574,839.70, add them, and we will find all banks and trust companies have combined net assets amounting to $4,017,985,925.26, a little over $4 billion, and over half of this is excess profits earned over and above profits paid out as dividends. According to the United States Comptroller's said report, the total net earnings of all the national banks in 42 years is $3 billion $107,185,441, practically equal to the $3,214,000,000 that represents the total money in circulation, all the gold and currency of the United States in the hands of the people, banks, and federal treasury. And such national banks have actually paid out as dividends $2,236,000,000, $815,679. While some national banks earn 20, 30, 50, and even 100%, the average earnings of all last year exceeded 15% on their capital stock, and their dividends averaged 11.38%. And yet, they are not satisfied and now seek to have Congress vastly increase their profits by law. In 1907, there were only 418,057 stockholders of national banks, including duplications, so most of the vast profits go to a few persons. The bulk of the profit was made by relatively few of these stockholders, and in recent years, because while now there are 7,331 national banks, more than half of them were organized since 1900. And since that date, 3,086 small banks with average capital of $26,060 and aggregate capital of 
$425,500 have been organized. Just one New York bank, the National City Bank, has $25 million capital and $27,733,860 surplus and undivided profits. Total, $52,733,860. And under the Aldrich plan, this one Wall Street bank will own nearly one-third as much National Reserve Association stock as these entire 3,086 of the total 7,331 national banks scattered in every state. Returning now to the summary of all banks and trust companies, deduct $4,017,985,925.26, their combined net assets, capital surplus and undivided profits. From there, $23,631,083,382.67 of total liabilities, and we have $19,613,097,457.41 as the total amount they owe in excess of what they own net. And this $19.5 billion of excess liabilities is 12 and one half times as much as the billion and one half cash they possess. So the basis herein used of 10 times as much credit liabilities as they have in cash was far below the average. And these figures are from the official government report available without cost for everyone on request to the United States Comptroller of the Currency, Washington, D.C., his December 4, 1911 report, or through a congressman or senator. This inflation of credit out of all proportion to cash reserves is the danger point in the banking system. It has been getting worse and worse, banks taking greater chances grabbing for more profits. Banks loan their credit usually for 30, 60, or 90 days and cannot require payment until the time matures and the discounted note falls due. Usually banks do not loan actual money. They give borrower a bank book with the proceeds of the discounted note entered therein as a checkable credit. He then is a depositor and his credit is payable on demand and can all be at once checked out. This seldom is done and the bank profits accordingly. But to be in debt $19 billion or even $15 billion most of it in shape of credit deposits payable on demand, and to have all combined only $1,500,000,000 cash to pay with if the avalanche starts would get on the nerves of an ordinary mortal. Whether the fact that most of the money belongs to and is risked by the stockholders and the people, and relatively little by the men actually managing the institutions on salaries and sometimes indirect profits, acts as a nerve tonic, and perhaps often as a daring narcotic, bankers can best answer. It is a serious defect in a banking system that puts most of the power and profits in the hands of those who will lose the least by any calamity. The people who have deposited actual cash savings and businessmen whose loans unexpectedly are called in are the greatest sufferers when panic occurs. The banker can get his out quick, if he has any in. 
To borrowers, he can shrug his shoulders and say, Very sorry, sir, but the panic is the work of providence. Business is business. Go sell your property for any price you can get. We must have our money. The bank loaned the businessman $10,000 credit and no cash. He sent checks right and left to pay bills for goods in stock and unsold. Now the bank, instead of renewing as expected, demands $10,000 in actual money to settle a debt that was for credit. And at a time when two or three dollars of property must be sold to get one dollar of cash. And the humble depositor whose deposit was not credit but actual cash may be told that he must wait for his money, perhaps thirty days, and take the intervening risks. In the 1907 panic, most big banks were legally insolvent, refused to pay deposits in cash, repudiated. They were saved only by the patience and good nature of the people. And now, in return, they swell up with lordly air and join Wall Street in a conspiracy to take away from the people and the government for nothing, just appropriate by act of Congress, one billion dollars of public currency, money, to put in their vaults as cash reserves, to enable banks to increase their loans and make the people pay regular interest on ten billion dollars more credit than they might not need if the banks would allow Congress to increase government currency so that more business could be done on a cash basis. Owners of cash rule all banks. Returning now to the Steel Trust's $75 billion of cash. If the banks had made the $750 million of extra loans based on this $75 million of money, payable in, say, 30, 60, or 90 days, and the Steel Trust suddenly should exercise its legal rights by demanding immediate payment in money of its $75 million of cash deposits that are payable on demand, the banks might be utterly helpless and fail and close their doors unless they could get other banks to come to their rescue and save them from ruin. And a bank thus asking for help to save its life often must give control of its stock to the interests furnishing such help. And if the banks thus were forced to close and liquidate, the losses to small depositors who had put in actual cash savings and had no timely warning would be a real calamity. Take a single country bank, for example. Say its capital stock and surplus, all that it really owns net, is $200,000. Its total deposits, say $2 million, 10% cash deposits and 90% credit deposits. Suppose a man should deposit $200,000 additional cash in that bank. Perhaps he would be paid interest thereon at 2% or 4% per annum. The bank could, based on such $200,000 cash deposit, swell its loans of credit and its nominal deposits $2 million, making its total loans and deposits $4 million. On such extra $2 million of loans, it would collect interest at perhaps 5% or 6% per annum. The $200,000 cash deposits enables the bank practically to double its loans and deposits and its income. And obviously the owner of that $200,000 has power any time simply by withdrawing the money to decrease the total loans and deposits of the bank one-half, or $2 million, and to take away at least 50% of the earning power of such bank. 
These figures are strictly accurate, and will be varied only in localities or in degree, according as a bank may keep relatively a greater or less cash reserve. The $75 million cash divided and deposited in the 3,086 smaller banks that have $80,425,500 aggregate capital would practically double the loaning power and profits of them all. This accomplished, and the aggregate loans of such banks expanded, say, $750 million, put out for 30, 60, and 90 days, every bank would be in the absolute power of the owner of that $75 million cash on deposit payable on demand. Is there any action, political or otherwise, in any or all of those 3,086 cities and hamlets in every part of the country that the owner of the $75 million could not get for the mere asking? Could there be a greater or more dangerous political machine? It is the power to control the actual cash that is the evil, the danger. Suppose now that the real object in depositing that $200,000 cash in that bank was ultimately to acquire actual ownership of a majority of the shares of the capital stock of such bank, say, $101,000 thereof. How could the bank safely refuse to induce its stockholders to part with 51% of their stock holdings, even if the price offered was low, if the alternative was the possible sudden withdrawal of the $200,000 cash deposit and forced contraction of loans $2 million and possibly the closing of the bank's doors because it might be unable to collect in its loans fast enough? Often, in such cases, no threat or demand for stock control is necessary. The mere intimation that tomorrow the owner probably will withdraw the $200,000 because he will need it to invest in some securities he thinks of buying, is sufficient to make the bank suggest, and finally to beg, that he invest in the stock of such bank, instead of something else, which he permits himself to be persuaded to do, in case enough stock to control the bank is turned over to him. And, of course, he gets control. Control of more than one great financial institution in New York City and elsewhere containing millions upon millions of the deposit savings of the peoples, have been obtained by big business in this or other questionable ways, or in the midst of runs or panics deliberately caused or stimulated by high finance adventures for sinister purposes. Again, suppose what the owner of this $200,000 rapid-fire cash gun is gunning for is control of some big local industry situated in the small town where such bank is located, such industry being a successful and troublesome competitor of a big trust. It is easily discovered that the industry is a large borrower at the local bank, necessarily so at times to carry an adequate supply of suitable raw materials and large quantities of finished product up to marketing time, and the accounts of customers until due. Gradually and secretly, the net is spread. The $200,000 is deposited in the bank, not by the trust, but in the name of some individual or several persons. The bank is thus encouraged to expand the volume of its loans. The industry in question, being perfectly solvent and sound, is persuaded by the bank to borrow greater sums which it does to effect a saving by larger purchases of raw materials. 
All now is ready. The trap is sprung. The money suddenly or gradually is withdrawn from the bank under one pretext or another. The bank hastily presses for the repayment of its loans. The local industry is importuned to help. It turns over its cash balance. It crowds its customers, urging, begging, demanding payment. These proceeds are handed over to the bank, but the amount relatively is insignificant. The bank demands, even threatens. It can do nothing else and comply with the cash reserve law. The industry slaughters prices and sells large quantities of its products at a loss. It reduces expenses by laying off large numbers of its workmen, although the market demand would justify an increase rather than decrease of output. It discharges some of its office help and traveling men, and even reduces the salaries of its officers and managers. Every dollar the bank insists on having, for a bank in distress usually thinks only of itself. All this is done quietly, even secretly. The public knows nothing of it. If it did, local depositors might take alarm, withdraw more deposits, and increase the peril of the bank. There is no panic, no hard times. In fact, there is general prosperity. This transaction has nothing to do with general conditions. It is just a quiet little game of freeze-out, and the bank and the industry do not even know they are sitting in a game. They think Providence is the architect of their misfortunes. Superstitiously, they consider themselves the victim of fate. But the trust and the manipulators of that $200,000 know differently. At the psychological moment, the darkest hour, some entirely different party just casually happens to ask one of the officers of the industry if any of its capital stock is for sale or could be bought at a reasonable price. Or perhaps the inquiry is made of the distressed local banker. Wonder of wonders, the miracle of the ravens dropping manna from the sky to save the life of the famishing prophet of old, lost in the wilderness, was nothing compared with this modern miracle. A chance to sell out for real money, and the buyer does not even know the financial hole the industry is in? The rest is simple and easy. The bank, for its own benefit, helps induce the stockholders of the industry to accept a low price and part with control or all of the stock. And lo and behold, the bank is saved, the former owners of the industry fleeced or ruined, and another competitor has been benevolently assassinated by the trust in the interest of cooperation and the logical and inevitable development of natural and immutable economic laws. Bosh! It was just a common low-down bunco game, and the present banking methods and control and use by the selfish few of a dangerous quantity of the actual money of the country were the agencies employed, or, more likely, the pinched and terrified officers of the local industry, perhaps under pressure from the bank, themselves rushed to the trust with an offer to sell out, and the trust kindly consents to buy, of course, against its interest and desire, solely for the benefit of suffering humanity and to prevent the possible spread of public fear and alarm that might perhaps cause failures and general panic, or what not. Oh, fiddlesticks! The real trust problem is not merely high prices and a way to lower them a little, but it is to regulate or destroy trust power over money and banks and railroads and politics, that deadly conspiracy of all the interests of Wall Street 
for mutual power and profit. If we must have monopolies, the law should effectively and permanently deprive and take away from such corporations every extra profit, power, and advantage obtained by use of the power conferred by monopoly. And should not all excess profits due to monopoly be confiscated by law and be returned to the people through the federal treasury? Once more, suppose the owner of the $200,000 wanted to borrow, say, $2 million for himself and associates in some stock market secret pool, organized like the Hawking Railroad Pool, to manipulate up and down 50% the entire stock of some particular corporation. Say, artificially to force the stock up to twice its value, unload at the top, and after selling short, knock the props from under the market by withdrawing pool support, profiting again by letting the quotation prices go to smash, the public as usual being caught both ways and left to hold the bag. He proceeds by putting the $200,000 cash in the bank. The bank under the law can then increase its loans about $2 million. The man is to get the backing of the bank and the use of its credit in the shape of ordinary loans for $2 million in his stock market campaign, and the bank will get 6% or perhaps only 2% on $2 million of extra loans, less, say, 2% or 4% the bank will pay on the $200,000 cash deposit. No doubt the man and the bank between them can devise a way to get the entire $2 million into the hands of the pool by loans to various of its members, or to their office boys or colored porters as dummies or otherwise. For there are 40 ways to skin a skunk when black fur brings high enough prices. The utter fallacy of the old saying, a man cannot lift himself over the fence by his own bootstraps, may begin to dawn upon the reader as we study the bank methods of inflation of credit, or financial wind, Wind is cheaper than water, so banks just pump wind into their holdings, and the secret of the enormous profits and rapid rise in stock value enjoyed by many banks now can be better understood. If all this could be accomplished, or only a fraction of these things, by use of a paltry $200,000 of cash, what is impossible to those possessing $75 million, or perhaps $750 million of actual money ever ready for instant use, and which can be shifted about to further their business. We are not saying that trust would do it. Our present purpose is to show the power to do so. The people must judge as to the safety or danger of lodging such unlimited, unrestrained, and unregulated power in private hands. Is it not mere child's play to put the quotation price of the $508,302,500 of Steel Trust common stock up to 70 or any other price, so long as the trust with its $75 million cash can increase the loaning power of the banks enough to supply sufficient credit to the pool sustaining that stock to buy every share in existence? What chance has anyone trying to buck such an omnipotent financial power? Power of the Money Combine So far we have shown but a fraction of the evil, the danger. We must multiply the $75 million of the steel trust by the cash controlled by every trust, railroad, insurance company, bank, trust company, or other corporation directly or indirectly dominated by the small group of men in Wall Street 
who usually act as a unit for mutual profit and private advantage. The Northern Pacific Railroad alone has over $60 million cash or cash assets. The Tobacco Trust, $20 million. Express Companies, $70 million, or nearly as much as the Steel Trust, and every other system a greater or less sum. Three of the many Wall Street banks have on hand nearly $300 million of actual cash. They have three-fourths of a billion dollars of resources, and they control directly or indirectly other banks with vastly greater resources. The standard oil interests are said to directly or indirectly control many times as much ready cash as the $75 million of the Steel Trust, and two or three Wall Street firms are believed to be in position to command, when needed, to be shifted about to further the business of the money combined, unlimited portions of the billions of dollars of ready wealth said to be owned by the four European branches of the great banking Rothschild family, and other individual and corporate foreign capital in unlimited amounts. Those who control the depositing and disposition of the vast cash funds of corporations have within their reach rich and sure opportunities for personal profit. They are in position often to swap favors with the banks. It is not their own money, but that makes no difference. Money is power, and control of large money is both power and opportunity. Directly or indirectly, this one financial Wall Street group is believed thus absolutely to control much more than half and perhaps a sum equal to all of the $1,500,000,000 comprising the total cash reserves of all the 24,392 banks and trust companies of the United States. If this be true, that group has power simply by withdrawing this money from banks to easily and quickly force the financial institutions to contract by calling in and canceling more than one-half, if not all, of their entire $15 billion or more of outstanding loans. By thus extinguishing or forcing the banks to require the repayment of at least $8 billion of bank loans made to industrial, mercantile, commercial, and other business borrowers, an amount nearly three times the total of all money actually in circulation in this country, those few men could, if they would thus deprive the financial institutions of at least half, if not all, of their entire gross income, plunge such institutions into grave peril, if not into bankruptcy, cripple, if not ruin, a large percent of active businessmen and corporations, close factories, mills, and mines wholesale, cramp the operations of agriculture, drive millions of toilers into idleness and their helpless dependence into distress and poverty, and in fact to easily inaugurate the greatest and most devastating financial and industrial panic in the world's history. These few men possess absolutely the power of life and death over every bank and through the banks over the business of every individual and corporation in the United States because they control the money the lifeblood of all business, and the source of the credit, oxygen, necessary to the lungs of commerce to sustain its life and vitality. If the country enjoys prosperity, it is because these few men grant it and have loosened their purse strings. If the republic is plunged into the horrors of panic, it is because these few men so willed and have locked their guarded steel vaults with much of the needed cash of the nation on the inside. 
Think of the nationwide and powerful political machine this creates. Wall Street turns the switch and the current, its order, flashes over the wires to a distant bank. The bank tightens the screws on its customers by calling loans or threatening to do so, of course, as a matter of prudence for the safety of the bank, made necessary by fear of a possible panic if Congress does not quickly pass the Aldrich plan, etc., etc. Thus the bank's customers, all influential constituents of the local congressmen, are sicked into the representative and the senators until they are made to believe that the measure is popular and a great public necessity, and against their better judgment reluctantly they join those supporting the scheme in Congress. Wall Street from the first realized that its only possible chance of passing the bill was to so tempt and enlist or coerce the banks of the country that they would go to the limit in helping to force the congressmen of both parties to support the measure as a nonpartisan affair under pressure of constituents inspired to action by the local banks. It has been charged that the Panic of 1893, which also came suddenly in the midst of general prosperity, was largely caused or accelerated in just this way, the object being to stop the government issuing more silver money in particular and more money of any kind in general, because the banks desired for profit to supply all the money as well as the credit that the people use. There are, as we have seen, different and equally effective ways to control a bank in its actions other than by owning a majority of its capital stock, and also to control the making of its loans and the purchasing of securities and even the political actions of its officers, directors, and customers. It has been said that interest-friendly or affiliated with Standard Oil long maintained a cash deposit sufficient to increase by over $1 million the loaning power of a certain financial institution outside of New York City, of which institution a well-known and very high public official is an officer. How could that public servant oppose the special interests, even under his oath of office? As the curtain now is drawn back, we behold the majestic and imperial power of Wall Street, and the easy and invincible methods of employing that power for the ever-increasing enrichment of the few at the expense of the many by the great masters of finance. We discover just how the rapid concentration of banking capital and control and the consolidation of industries and railroads can be forced. We find the banking system willing or unwilling slaves chained to the wheels of the Wall Street machine, helpless to resist and afraid to protest. And through the banks, Wall Street has a strong, strangling rope around the neck of every borrowing individual and corporation in the United States. It is the physical control over the actual money that is the power. For actual cash is and must be the foundation upon which rests that vast inverted and inflated pyramid of bank credit that is at least ten times larger than the volume of money. Many of the evils of the present system are directly caused by improper state and federal banking laws, particularly as to bank reserves. When now the combined wealth of just two living Americans, if turned into cash and withdrawn from the banks and hoarded, would rob every bank and trust company in the country of practically all their cash reserves and force them to call in most, if not all, of the 15 or more billion dollars of credit loans legally resting on such cash reserves, the power of such men will be understood, and we may well be gravely concerned about the future, as this concentration continues at compound ratio. 
The banks in the country have a greater need of legislation to remove the possibility and danger of frequent silent raids on the cash reserve of the banks by powerful manipulating special interests than to protect against infrequent panic-inspired runs by small depositors, for usually the runs are only the effect of the panic which the raids cause. If the causes of panics are removed, the effects automatically will disappear. In the panic of 1907, the first important withdrawals and the major part of all the cash taken out of menaced trust companies was owned or controlled by the big interests of Wall Street. And it was such withdrawals by these very interests in 1907 that caused or helped to cause or stimulate that dangerous and far-reaching panic that involved the whole country and all its business and was only stopped when, at the earnest pleadings of Wall Street, the vaults of the Federal Treasury were opened, and millions upon millions of public money was dumped into the financial institutions of New York City as an advertised bluff to quiet the general alarm and restore confidence in the banks. Money is power, control of money. Growth of this power must be checked now or never, and there is no time to be lost. Law, backed by the strong arm of the Federal Government, supported by the popular will, is the only force that can resist, regulate, and effectively control the overswollen power of money. Will all this insane lust for profit and power end in general confiscation as the one alternative to financial, industrial, and political serfdom to some one uncontrolled, irresponsible, insatiable, imperious man-master who has all power and no responsibility and whose only virtue is that he has got the coin? All lovers of orderly government hope not. Will the interests madly drive on over the cliffs to destruction? If the banks dared to do so, instead of joining with Wall Street in a private central bank conspiracy to help corner every other dollar of real money not already controlled by high finance, such banks would be on their knees in fervent prayer to Congress to rescue the financial institutions from the greedy and ever-tightening grip of Wall Street. The one remaining chance for salvation for the banks and the business interests dependent in any way upon the banks is the creation of an independent financial power bigger and stronger than Wall Street and its allies, a government central bank or institution absolutely owned and controlled by the federal government to supply banks direct and the people through the banks an adequate quantity of public currency to keep the cash reserves up to standard and thus maintain an ample volume of bank credit based on such reserves always available and ready at reasonable cost and on fair conditions for the legitimate and fluctuating needs of business. This done, the $75 million or the $750 million can be withdrawn from banks if Wall Street and its foreign allies so desire. It will do no harm because as fast as it is withdrawn, its place will be taken by government currency supplied on fair and reasonable terms by such public institution issuing the currency. This plan absolutely protects the banks and the entire business community, takes all excessive and dangerous power away from Wall Street, makes future panics impossible, and does not harm or endanger the banks, the government, or the people. And this or some similar plan is the only way of escape for the people and the country from present evils and dangers. Wall Street then would not withdraw its funds because it could gain no advantage by doing so. 
The banks will find the government, the people, a better friend, and a more generous and safe master than Wall Street. Their rights and privileges will be clearly defined and enforced by law, and not left subject to the greedy will and pleasure of interests that will promise and not perform, help only that they may better rule and exploit. The welfare of the banks and the people are or should be mutual, and Wall Street is the deadly enemy of both. The sharp claws of high finance can be clipped in no other way. It is the only way to emancipate the banks, individual and corporate business, the people and the government, from the intolerable and increasing financial despotism of Wall Street. End of chapter 13